Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. Okay. Yeah, okay, great. All right. All right. Let's do it live. Let's do it. All right, let's go. Welcome to the podcast today. My guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. I'm going to have you say your title because I had a nightmare recently. I thought I was going to have to introduce Rose Gottemuller, and I looked at her title, all her titles, and I just thought, I can't do this. It was so much easier when she was just the deputy at NATO. So, Jeffrey, what, what is your title? I am a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Oh, okay. Oh, great. I thought there was so much more to it than that. All right. I'm also um, a staff member at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute. Of international like studies, I, if I keep pushing, we're going to get a couple more. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I mean, I have other, I have other things I do, <laughs> various honorary appointments, and are, are you? I think I've got like a couple of customer loyalty cards with various cafes. <laughs> so there are a number of qualifications for this conversation we're about to have. No, that's true. And and I'm really glad that you're here today because what we're going to talk about, the format of the show, we're going to talk about a current crisis. We're going to talk about an arms control agreement that should govern that crisis and, of course, arms control in the widest sense of the term. Uh, and then, you know, what went right, what went wrong, and are there any lessons that we can learn from the attempt to apply an arms control solution to the problem? So l- let me just sketch the problem really quickly and you can jump in and tell me uh, if I'm missing anything. The issue being North Korea. Uh, I'm going to ask you to to characterize some of the issues there with their very robust nuclear weapons program, building warheads, although they've been preparing for a test for almost a year. Uh, thought it was going to happen in June last year. Hasn't happened yet. Um, lots and lots of missile tests, more missile tests than I think we've seen frequency-wise uh, in their history. South Korea reacting to that, all the things that they want to do left of launch, that is before North Korea can launch nuclear weapons, which creates this sort of classic cycle, the U.S. reaction to that to try to offer more deterrence, but of course some confusion between President Biden and President Yoon, President Yoon back in January making some statements so that South Korea might consider getting the bomb. And now just recently, this meeting between uh, the U.S. and South Korea to to try to improve nuclear consultations. So you watch the North Korean situation very closely. You watch South Korea very closely. Uh, You know, what are the most destabilizing or worrisome aspects of the crisis for you today? I think there is really just one core problem, and, and that core problem comes down to the way that South Korean and North Korean missile forces are postured on the peninsula. 
and I I've said this before, and so I'm I'm becoming a broken record, but I like <laughs> please someone listen. I think the fundamental nature of the problem is that as North Korea has acquired a nuclear deterrent, which wait, did I say South Korea or North Korea? <laughs> I think you said North Korea. I think, oh good. Oh good. I it's hard to keep track these days. <laughs> As North Korea acquired a nuclear deterrent, the North Koreans thought it was defensive, or at least imagine it or portray it that way. And like the South Koreans like definitely do not feel this way, right? They feel like it is definitely an instrument of coercive leverage. Um, not necessarily that the North Koreans would immediately use nuclear weapons, but that they can engage in all kinds of conventional provocations right. shielded by their nuclear force. And so the South Koreans have developed an extremely capable conventional missile force. And and the purpose of that is to kill Kim Jong-un before he can use the nuclear weapons, right? So that's to offset. Right. And the North Korean response to that has been to develop a whole new generation of short and medium range, what they call tactical nuclear weapons. And it seems to pre-delegate the authority to use those weapons to commanders so that they can get that leverage back so that even if the South Koreans kill Kim Jong-un, the nuclear weapons still get used. And what's really interesting about that kind of mutual posturing is the North Korean plan is be willing to use nuclear weapons first so that there is coercive leverage against South Korea. And for the South Koreans, it's be willing to use conventional decapitation first so that the North Koreans don't get that leverage. And so, as I have said repeatedly, in a crisis, they both plan to go first, and one of them is wrong about that. Right. And that, that to me, is what is deeply alarming about the problem, because left to their own devices, I think neither of them wants to start a war, but they have created mutual incentives, I think, that in a crisis might escalate rather than de-escalate. So this is classic prisoner's dilemma, both sides trying to maximize their security and they end up with the absolute worst outcome possible with uh, both fingers on the trigger and ready to go and constantly watching each other to see who's going to go first and trying to outguess them and strike first first. Yeah, I've got I've got this lovely piece of graph paper that I have saved from 2003 when I got to spend a week on an uh, educational exchange, a bunch of us from the University of Maryland went to Iskran in Moscow. And one of the people from Maryland who came with us was Tom Schelling. And he gave the prisoner's dilemma lecture. And so I've got like the little square with the payoff, you know, the payoff (laughs) matrix, you know, with the one, 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 four, you know, what what is it? (laughs) Yeah. It's like two, two, one, four, four, one. Anyway. Right. And, you know, like we're in the lower right quadrant of the payoff matrix where you get the bad outcome that nobody wants, but it's, you know, better than being caught unaware. And so that brings me to, there. I mean, there was a way out of this. There was uh, that sliding doors moment. You know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm romanticizing it. But, you know, you did have the agreed framework. You had a potential solution because as in the 90s, as Soviet Union collapsed, uh, North Korea starts to move much more quickly towards the bomb. I think it's the the George H.W. Bush administration had removed all the nuclear weapons from South Korea. North Korea races up. Clinton administration then starts to prepare an attack to 
destroy the nascent North Korean nuclear program. And then Jimmy Carter gets on a plane and saves the day with the agreed framework. So tell me a little bit about that agreement and what do you think that could have done in the sliding doors moment where both sides fully implement that? Do you think that was a way out of this or do you think the current crisis was inevitable anyway? How do you see the agreed framework as a moment in time? It is a really uh, fraught question. I I teach this in my class on decision-making about the bomb. Uh, It was actually last week. And as I was teaching the class, some of my colleagues on Twitter uh, broke out into a fight over this very, very same question. And so the important framing for this question is to remember that we are talking about the early 1990s. So we are talking about 30 years ago, Yeah, which is, it does not feel like 30 years ago. Um, I want <laughs> I, I just slightly freaks me out. But the context is extremely different in that moment. And so the United States had nuclear weapons in South Korea, as you say, but had removed them. Right. North Korea did not yet have nuclear weapons, or if it did, it did not have an appreciable number of them. What North Korea had was a program that was on the verge of providing significant amounts of fissile material for what would later become their first nuclear weapons. And the the moment was sort of characterized by North Korea having a number of challenges. And I think those challenges are what opened up the possibility of an agreement. And Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, was the leader of North Korea at the time. And Kim Il-sung wanted a nuclear weapon, as I think most any leader in the world wants a nuclear weapon, right? I mean, I just, he doesn't think there's any reason North Korea shouldn't have a nuclear weapon. Uh, It doesn't particularly like his neighbors. But at the same time, he was facing a number of constraints. He wanted something, but they did not yet have it. And so while we now know with retrospect, it was technically possible, he didn't know how quickly that would come or if they'd be able to pull it off without getting attacked. So I think he had some hesitation, not out of the goodness of his heart, but just out of the kind of inherent uncertainty of the situation. The Soviet Union had collapsed. And so he was absent a superpower patron. And that put him in an uncomfortable position because it wasn't clear to him that North Korea was going to survive. He had a very uneasy relationship with the Chinese, who at that point, we we sort of forget, but even though this is post-Tiananmen Square, China was still uh, liberalizing, and the Chinese were putting North Koreans under a lot of pressure to do the same thing, and and the North Koreans found this to be like bizarre advice from the dudes who had just survived Tiananmen Square. And he himself was aging, and he wanted to pass power to his son, and there was some uncertainty about how that was all going to work out. And so my estimation of that moment, and this is kind of a long-winded answer, is that the North Koreans wanted something to increase their freedom of action and safeguard their regime. And they felt extremely weak. Oh, this is also right after the Gulf War. Where, by the way, Colin Powell afterwards derisively mocked that he was running out of villains and he was down to Castro and Kim Il-sung. Uh, that you know, probably was not uh, well received in Pyongyang. Uh, a, not well received in Pyongyang, and B, I mean, this is like a recurring theme. Like, I, I'm like the only person in Washington who loathes Colin Powell. But I just, like, to me, that's like the epitome of what a just a glib, shallow, 
person he was. But there, I think there was this real sense from the North Koreans that they were in really they were in real trouble and they needed to do something. And I, I think they had a variety of some things. And like building a nuclear weapon was definitely something. And like that was like on the list of things that like are probably worth doing. At the same time, building a better relationship with the United States also was an interesting something because there was no Soviet Union and they weren't totally sure that they wanted to be a complete client state of the Chinese. So before we get into even the technical detail of the agreed framework, what I think the North Koreans were agreeing to was to freeze, though not really give up, but just freeze their nuclear weapons option in place while seeing if they could transition to a different kind of relationship with the United States. And I think the Clinton people bought this, by the way, because they figured they'd never have to actually like reconcile with like what it would be like to accept the existence of the Kim family ruling North Korea. Because I think nobody thought the Kim family would rule North Korea very long, precisely because people were feeling that moment of, I'm out of villains, I'm down to Castro and Kim Il-sung. Both, both regimes that have survived. So you have in the context of the collapse of the Soviet Union, so this sort of inevitability that North Korea is going to either fall. Yeah, North Korea has been, what, five minutes away from falling for 30 years now. But also in the context of the Joint Declaration on the Denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, January 20th, 1992, which you know, I guess also added a degree of cynicism to any thought on a denuclearization because uh, you know actual uh, agreement that North Korea would abandon this program because you know here they they had just declared that they weren't going to do this and then we think that they are actually doing it anyway so that kind of sets an uneasy table for negotiations doesn't it oh to be 100% clear i look back at our historical debates and this is very odd for me because i'm someone who generally supports the agreed framework but if if you make me go back and look at the historical debates all the people on my side of the argument are like, oh, we don't actually think the North Koreans want nuclear weapons. This is just a bargaining chip. You know, they're going to give them up. And I, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, all the people who hate the agreed framework are right. They actually do want nuclear weapons and they want the security those nuclear weapons will provide them. My sense, though, is that they were cautious. They were cautious because they didn't want nuclear weapons because, because they liked nuclear weapons inherently. They liked nuclear weapons for what it did in terms of regime survival. And so they had in front of them a complicated set of choices to make about regime survival. And so like, again, like this is not like their peace-loving anti-nuclear, like it's, it's like, no, 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 we, we want to be able to continue to place people in labor camps who criticize us, right. right? What is the best way for us to go about having the power to continually place domestic critics in labor camps. And it's like, well, the bomb would help us do that. Um, but also taking some of the diplomatic pressure off, getting some, uh, you know, uh, finding a way to replace the assistance the Soviet Union had been providing. Like, they, you know, how do you create international support for a, a, a communist monarchy, which is like a weird thing. And so I think they had that kind of North Koreans agree not to build nuclear weapons along with the South Koreans, but they also agree not to possess enrichment or reprocessing facilities. At the very moment that they're building a giant reprocessing facility, which is to this day why they still call it, the IAEA still calls oh, it the wow. radiochemical okay. laboratory. The North Koreans are like, it's not a reprocessing facility. It's a radiochemical laboratory. It's like, what? 
The point three, so the Saturn Earth shall not possess nuclear reprocessing and uranium. Yes. Facilities. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So it's, you know, again, to be absolutely clear, if you were to go back and look at this historical debate, and honestly, this is why I teach this in class, not just this case, but all of the cases, look at historical debates. I think we often, even if we pick a side and we say, okay, well, we should have done this and not that, right? It's not it's not immediately clear that we always agree with the arguments made in the moment, that the framings are not always correct. And so I, I am extremely skeptical of this. The North Koreans were just bluffing. They were just bargaining. Uh, I mean, they were bargaining, but these were not a bargaining chip. This, this was a, an honest-to-God nuclear weapons program. And, and I think the North Koreans were kicking the tires on, again, not giving it up. But what it would be like to freeze that? Yeah, it's just such a strange certainty. Yeah, it's nuclear latency, which is like not a not an unheard of strategy. Oh, sure. um, and you know, they could point across the Sea of Japan and say, you know, there's a degree of latency in in a, in a lot of states. But you know, all of this coming in the context of North Korea signing the NPT in '85 and trying to put safeguards in place while they're developing this other strategy. So again, it just it just sets a very strange bedrock for negotiations between the sides and the threat to withdraw from the NPT that they've only just signed and they're trying to get safeguards in place. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complex negotiating strategy from the North Koreans, but then we have this agreement. And so let's talk a little bit about the agreement itself. It's interesting. Agreement. Well, let me say, but before we do that, I mean, they're making it up as they go along. Yeah. It's not grand strategy. Yeah. They, they want a nuclear weapon in the late 70s because the South Koreans are also building a nuclear weapon. You know, it's just, oh, look, two evil dictators. They split a peninsula between them. They are both building nuclear weapons. South Koreans really get mad at me when I say that Park Park Chung-hee was an evil dictator. But like, I guess I would have preferred to live in South Korea in the 60s than North Korea in the 60s, but they both seem pretty miserable to me. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I guess I'd rather get old in South Korea because it's going to get better. I'm still going to keep my mouth shut. But yeah. I think they start building that reactor domestically because the Soviets won't give them one. Is this the Yongbyon? Yes. Right. That's a domestically produced reactor that's a copy, a scaled down copy of the Japanese reactor at Tokai. And, and they're building... They're copying that reactor because they can't get a Soviet model because the Soviets will not provide one. And then the U.S. is initially very dismissive of the reactor because you can see the declassified estimates now. They don't understand how big it is. And once the U.S. realizes it's big and this becomes like a little bit of crisis that push the North Koreans and, and you know, this is like the era of Gorby now, right, in the Soviet Union. Right. They push this North Koreans to sign the NPT in the mid-80s. And then the, the North Koreans drag their feet on safeguards. Right. So I, I think the North Koreans basically are, they're getting pushed, right? The Soviets won't give them a reactor, so they build their own. Then their patron is yep. pushing them to sign the NPT, so they drag their feet on safeguards. Then the safeguards reveals that they have a very, what looks to me like a nuclear weapons program at the same time their superpower patron collapses. And I think that's the context. And they're like, well, maybe we should freeze the program and chill out a little bit and like see what our right. options are. So again, I, I, I guess I've now made the same point twice, but I think it is so important not to sort of essentialize the North Korean desire for nuclear weapons 
I, I think the agreed framework is a an agreement reached in a very particular contingent moment. Well, I think that's what's really important. That's why I think it was worth going through again, because this is it's just so easy to say, well, we tried and it failed. And it's like, well, no, this was an incredibly complex series of historical factors, outside influences, inside drivers, everything that leads you to this point. Then in 1994, when trying to get a safeguards, a comprehensive safeguards agreement in place and implemented reveals a nuclear weapons program. And then this sets off what is an imminent crisis. Looks like the U.S. is going to come in with a carrier battle group and solve the problem once and for all. And instead, diplomacy comes in. But this is a very, very unusual agreement because it has so many different aspects to it. It has so many moving parts. So can you talk a little bit about the agreement itself? You know, the agreement is really unusual in a number of ways. So one thing about the agreement that is unusual is it is an agreed framework, right? It's signed by Bob Gallucci, who at the time is an assistant secretary. So it's not, it's not. Heads of state or something. Um, that's right. And in fact, that becomes a major issue for the North Koreans. Because what the North Koreans really want is an agreement with the United States. And so the North Koreans insist on a separate letter of assurance from Bill Clinton, which creates its own political challenges. And to the point when the North Koreans get it, it's on White House stationery, but it it just is signed, you know, William J. Clinton. It doesn't say President of the United States under his name. And the North Koreans are like, wait, what are wow. uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have his title. And you know, the US side is like there's only one Bill Clinton and it's on White House stationery. Like, what the hell do you want? But the reason is the North Koreans, when they published the agreed framework in the Rodong Sinmun, they also put the letter of assurance next to it. Uh, so they okay. care. The North Koreans care deeply about the political aspect. And I, I say that because when you actually look at the agreement, unlike the joint comprehensive plan of action, the Iran deal, which is extremely long and detailed, this agreement is very short. And it's like three pages. Right. That's right. And it has four sections. One of those sections yeah. deals with the freezing the North Korean plutonium program. To be clear, the North Koreans sort of abstractly agree in the long run, once they get everything that they've asked for, that they will eventually uh, dismantle these facilities. But it's it's absolutely clear that what you're purchasing up front is a freeze. You know, it's a, it's a freeze that will eventually someday, once relations are normalized and specifically once the replacement reactors are built, which I, I guess I have to say those are those have been offered. But once all the technical things are done, then they will dismantle the facilities. So the first the first part is basically this deal of they freeze the plutonium program, they will get light water reactors financed largely by the South Koreans and the Japanese and built by this international consortium led by the United States. And until they get those reactors, they will get energy assistance. And that's heavy fuel. And that's heavy fuel oil. And then the rest of this is about a process for uh, normalizing diplomatic relations. There's uh, a section on sort of safeguards and nonproliferation. Basically, like uh, North Korea doesn't leave the NPT and the IAEA gets access to resolve safeguards issues. And now I'm actually blanking on what the freaking fourth thing is. Good Lord, I taught this last week. How, how can I not remember? 
hold two sets of this is just so listeners know i'm 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 i'm, I'm not perfect <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember what the fourth one is i literally taught this last You've week. got the react that's reactors part oh. one part two is normalization part three is peace and security right. on the nuclear free korean oh that's right that's it's right international it's- npt regime right it's the one that doesn't matter. Point three. The one I forgot is the one that doesn't matter. But you say it doesn't matter. But again, all of this is coming in the context of North Korea really kind of desperately seeking some kind of end to the Korean War. That's right. So that's what this is. About. That's about right. some kind of. That's right. That's security assurances, the joint declaration, and the 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 North South dialogue. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm being a little flip when I say <laughs> okay. it's no. That's okay. That's okay. Matter. I I just but you know it's funny because when you. If you go read, say, the book, the very excellent book that Joel Witt, Dan Poneman, and Bob Gallucci wrote about the agreed framework, and I, I walk my students through this, I have them read the summary of the agreed framework that they describe uh, with, that was given to Clinton, mm-hmm. and I have them compare it with this document. And what's really notable is what they choose to highlight in their summary and what they choose to de-emphasize. And so the summary to Clinton as described by those three, which I believe is probably an accurate summary, emphasizes point one, right? We are getting a non-proliferation benefit because the North Koreans are freezing and eventually agreeing to dismantle their program. And the other stuff kind of gets mentioned it does get described I'm, i would not say they don't describe it but they don't really frame it in a way that would be i think recognizable to the north koreans you know like you can't read their summary of it and know what the north koreans think they're getting out of the deal yeah. and so so this to me the agreed framework is especially interesting because it is it is not very technical although there are there are i think there's an annex that is much more technical but it's a straight deal where from our perspective it's like you freeze your program and we will give you energy assistance initially in the form of heavy fuel oil later in the form of these reactors but mostly what the north koreans are getting is the promise of a different relationship with the united states and that's that's the deal, and I, I think again, I think that is so contingent on the moment they're in. Although we see it from time to time, which is Kim Il Sung strokes out just before this is agreed, and so it's Kim Jong Il who is the leader when this finally gets done, and he is brand new, so he is very eager to consolidate his power at a time when most people think he will not survive. And I think the Clinton people, I think they're they're making a deal with a regime that they don't think they're going to have to worry about for much longer. We're going to take a quick break right here, back in just a second, with Jeffrey Lewis on the Arms Control Poser podcast. It's so interesting that you mentioned that the perception of the agreement, because I recall studying the NPT, one of the things that the Soviets actually said was, we're going to come to your ratification hearing. And if you explain to Congress, and this is to Bill Foster, who had to you know go testify about the NPT, mm. 
if you say anything to Congress that differs from our understanding. Foster Fellows. <laughs> That's right. If, That's uh, true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Bill Foster. Yep, that Bill Foster. But if he said anything to Congress that intimated that the U.S. had a different understanding or that tried to persuade the Senate that the understanding between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was somehow different than what the Soviets knew, then the Soviets weren't going to ratify the treaty. And so the U.S. restricted themselves to talking about the treaty in ways that were 100% congruent with their secret negotiations with the Soviet Union. So I can see why, for the North Koreans, this might have been a little bit unusual to hear the U.S. talking about it a little bit differently and therefore you know, starting, starting off on a really bad foot. And as you mentioned, also having your leader die right in the middle of this is also not ideal for implementation of a complex agreement. Yeah, you know, I... I don't know. It's a really interesting question whether or not the North Koreans realize how little we get them. And I I think about this a lot because we have these recurring debates about when and whether and when it's appropriate for senior officials to meet with North Korean officials, right? Like uh, that's the big criticism of Trump is, oh, you front loaded the benefit. You know, obviously it was the criticism of Madeleine Albright when she went and Bill Clinton ultimately decides at the end of the Clinton administration when they're trying to uh, get a missile deal not to go uh, because he doesn't he doesn't want to give that bit of leverage up uh, that a future president might have. So we have this sort of idea that they care about these sort of formalities. But I, I wonder if we don't quite understand the degree to which the North Koreans are really concerned about regime survival and regime legitimacy and recognition. And I like my favorite example of this comes from later, where there's this North Korean movie called The Country I Saw. Okay. It's like it's like a it's like four movies. It, it's it's this kind of you know operatic drama. We had a graduate student watch it. It's like six hours. So you know we had to keep checking in on Hana to make sure like there weren't like little starlights of madness forming in her eyes. You know. It's, the minute she referred to North Korea as a worker's paradise, we were going to like pull her off the, uh, the high grade <laughs> propaganda. Um, but what's wild about that documentary or that, uh, that, that drama is it ends with this representation that North Korea has tested a, a nuclear weapon and a long range missile, which in this case is not a missile. It's the, the space launch vehicle. And the United States responds by sending a high level envoy and the Japanese are shocked and appalled to learn that it's Bill Clinton. And they use the footage from when Clinton went to get the poor hostages released. So it's it's just like they care so much about this idea that they have this legitimacy. You know, they, they wanted the picture of Clinton visiting so badly um, that they were willing to kidnap these poor women. But they can't present that as like, that's how we got the legitimacy. It can't be like, oh, we got the legitimacy yeah. by kidnapping these, <laughs> these poor people. It's, it's in fact that like, oh, no, it was our nuclear program that compelled the Americans to, you know, recognize us. So, you know, I, I think that actually kind of then starts to explain why this is such a tricky deal, which is they want that legitimacy, that recognition, that regime survival. And I think they believe that their power in the form of at least initially the ability to build nuclear weapons, and I think now the possession of them, is an essential component of eliciting that. So I think they actually believe that the reason Donald Trump showed up in Singapore and Hanoi was that the successful missile tests compelled him. 
And so my, my argument for why the agreed framework might have worked is not that they were ever going to give up anything they had done. They were never going to give up their, at that point, the latency they had. But I think they were willing to freeze if the threat of building nuclear weapons was sufficient to gain the benefits that they wanted. You know, So like that's not... Yeah. To me, that's a good deal given how things have shaken out, but it's it's not like the clean win for non-proliferation, peace, and goodness um, that maybe maybe we would all like. And then, of course, the agreement itself isn't implemented. Congress doesn't supply sufficient funding. Uh, there's talk of international funding for the reactors, non-delivery of fuel oil, yeah. and... It just spirals. It just falls apart. Well, the Clinton people, I mean, God love them. They were, I actually think the second term of Clinton is very, very good. I mean, I think it's very competent. In the same way, actually, that I think the second Bush term was quite competent. But like the first Bush term, the first Clinton term is chaotic. And so one of the big miscalculations they make is, you know, they're signing this in the early fall. They have a, a Democratic Congress, and they have had a Democratic House for, I think, 40 years at that point. Yeah. And they just don't see Newt Gingrich coming. Right. And so, and, and I have to be clear, like, House Republicans kind of jerk around the fuel oil deliveries, um, but they do it in a pretty sophisticated way. So it's not... If I recall, it is not quite as simple as saying, like, they just refused to pay for them. You know, things were late. They, and so from the North Korean perspective, fuel deliveries got held up. But there was like a lot of, um, it was a fairly adroit bureaucratic wrangling, right? So I think, I, at one point, I think House Republicans said, you know, they never failed to approve a request. Um, and I, I don't know if that's true. I haven't really gone through it, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that is is a little bit more complicated, I think, than we remember. Well, and so then, but, but yeah, the reactor politics. I mean, I didn't realize the reactor actually they broke ground on it, but everything was just so delayed at that point. And then you're into the Bush administration and the acts well, of evil speech. I mean, I just God love Bob Gallucci, who did you know yeoman's work here, and I, I just I have nothing bad to say about Bob Gallucci. <laughs> but they signed this thing in 1993, yeah. and their plan is to complete multiple nuclear power reactors with a total capacity of 2,000 megawatts right. electric by 20, well, 2003. That's yeah. 10 years. Well, actually, wait, sorry, I take that back. They signed this in, what, 94? Yeah, sorry, I mean, this 93 is the, um, yeah, is a different thing. So n nine years? You're going to build a nuclear power plant in nine years? Is that, that, I mean, that, wait, wait, I'm sorry, we're going to create an international consortium with multiple international sources of funding to build a nuclear power complex. It's going to be multiple reactors in North Korea in nine years. Yeah. I, I mean, like, even, yeah. even if you yeah. showed up, like, even if it turned out that Bill Clinton and Kim Jong-il were buddies in the way that like Trump and Kim Jong-un were. 
you know, and like they're like watching football games and eating pork rinds and, you know, drinking soju and like having a great time. And they were just like, like, you're my soulmate. I, I like you not going to build a reactor in nine years. Yeah. Like I just, you're not going to be able to do this. So like, you know, I mean, it was always fraud. Yeah. And, and, you know, you could say, okay, so there is more than anecdotal evidence that the Clinton administration really did think that they had a, a time limited problem here. And if they could kick the can and be seen to doing something, then, then that's pretty good. You know, they managed it good I, enough. I think that's not an unreasonable attitude. You know, like yeah. if your alternative is attack them and create this enormous catastrophe, right. buying the North Koreans off while waiting for them to collapse is, is not unreasonable if you have good reason to think collapse is something that's coming relatively quickly. On the other hand, I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I am, I both recognize the value of kicking the can down the road and I've also seen it done badly on like multiple occasions in my professional career. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know. This is like, this is a good strategy, but it's best used sparingly when you're, you know, you have a plan B in case they don't collapse. Yeah, because, you know, then the way this ends seems frighteningly familiar. The U.S. accuses North Korea of having secret enrichment and decides the best way to handle <laughs> the situation is to completely remove any safeguards whatsoever and pull out of the deal. And and there you go. You know, it's it's funny because I when we get to the end of this lesson in, in class and I have the students... Um, it's a, it's a week-long unit, so we have two classes, and they come back to the second class having summarized the agreed framework for the president, trying to recreate that exercise, and we've gone through the agreement again. I'm kind of at the end. I'm like, so um, what's missing? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how did you summarize the agreement? And they're like, well, they're freezing their nuclear program. And it's like, well, what does that mean to freeze their nuclear program? It's like, well, they're freezing their plutonium production reactors and the reprocessing facilities. And like, uh-huh. So what's missing? And rarely does someone say like, well, they didn't have an enrichment program to freeze, but oh. Because <laughs> you know, when the, when the US accuses the North Koreans of having an enrichment program, which they totally do, right? Like, they, I mean, I always joke the North Koreans are like, oh, that's funny. I don't, I don't see that anywhere on this document. Maybe it's on the back. No, no, it's not on the back. But to be to be clear, what's what's happening here is because this is essentially a I think a deal of freeze the nuclear program for uh, a relate an improvement in relations. You know, whatever whatever the actual agreement says, I think that is the the real deal that is on the table. Yeah, it's a freeze yeah. for a better relationship that helps them manage their leadership transition and their difficult geopolitical circumstance. That second part never really comes true. The energy assistance is delayed. The reactor project is delayed. North Koreans discover that American domestic politics is fun. <laughs> it's like, and, and then really importantly, the U.S. accuses the North Koreans of cheating on the agreement in terms of building this large underground facility at Kumchang-ri and this other facility at Hagop. And the U.S. actually gets 
an inspection of the facility at Kumchangri, which turns out not to be an underground nuclear reactor. We don't ever get in Hagop, and I think to this day we don't know what it is. It's a giant underground facility. And so I think from a North Korean perspective, they don't really get the improvement in relations that they're hoping for. And they, like, instead what happens is our attention turns to the other crappy things they're doing, like exporting missiles around the world, uh, including throughout the Middle East. And so, you know, you get to this point, this is the class I'm going to teach next week, which is kind of the, the end of the agreed framework. You have all these troublesome North Korean behaviors, and you're basically facing the same set of deals over and over again, which is North Koreans are like, well, we're willing to stop or freeze or pause, but you have to improve relations with us. Like that's fraught in the American domestic political context. And it plays out at the end of the Clinton administration in terms of North Korea's missile program where they almost get a deal. People really hate it when I say they almost get a deal because the way I teach it is they were very close to a deal, but it was a deal no one in the U.S. wanted. So like they weren't close to the deal we wanted, but they were close to a deal. But then the, you know, Gore loses and Bush comes in and um, the Bush people actually, I think, get a little bit of a bad rap here because they have, I think, a very serious internal policy debate about how to proceed with the missile and other challenges. And it's in that context that the enrichment intelligence comes in. And John Bolton, I think, exploits that very adroitly. And I, I think this is a case of John Bolton and the people around him prevailing more than it more than it tells us anything about like George W. Bush's actual feelings about the thing. So, but yeah, then it collapses, which is you know like not unlike one other agreement I know, right, right down to John Bolton. No, exactly, and yeah, we end up with the worst of <laughs> history repeating. It's it's a bad thing. Uh, so what's the takeaway here? I mean, what's what's the big lesson to be learned? What's the if you're to look at this in the fullness of time, if you're to go back and talk to Gallucci, would you say you you did the right thing? Would you say you should have done it differently? Like what what's the takeaway here? How do you what's the teaching moment here? What do you tell your students about this that that's useful yeah. for them to take forward? I think it's pretty simple. I think what we learn from this episode is that although things fall apart over nominally over the small stuff, they actually fall apart over the big stuff. So like the small stuff, I don't think matters that much. There's an an enormous emphasis placed on all of these incredibly small questions like, uh, you know, like I, when the fuel oil gets delivered and there's a ton of time I think spent negotiating, like how do you sequence reactor construction at the light water reactor project with other steps the North Koreans are going to take. And I think all that stuff is important and it, it matters to have a carefully written agreement, but we get basically the same outcome with the three or four page agreed framework that we get with the, you know, several hundred or however long it was page joint comprehensive plan of action in Iran. And the reason we get the same outcome has to do with the big, big stuff, which is when countries, when countries 
make deals, they're giving up as little as they can. Yeah. Right? They're not converted to the cause of non-proliferation. They're leveraging power. And so they're pausing. And, you know, if you really strong arm them, maybe they give up. But it's hesitant and it's hedging. And there are politics. And so there are people in those countries who don't want to have made this deal and are looking for any reason to reverse it. And invariably, what we are giving them is something big, something political, something that basically appeals to senior leadership that can overrule bureaucratic entities. Because the people building nuclear weapons in North Korea wanted the weapons. And you needed Kim Il-sung to overrule them and to say like, yes, nuclear weapons are important. And if this all falls apart, I am 100% going to do that. But what's more important to me right now is making sure my son takes over. And so like, we'll do this. And I think that's the same thing you saw in Iran. Yeah. You know, it's not, I, 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 the Iranians had a nuclear weapons program and like, they're going to have a nuclear weapons program again. But for whatever reason, there were big picture political reasons to pause, to take the foot off the gas. And so that's the deal we're striking. And the problem is we suck at striking that deal because it, it feels so dirty to safeguard the future of a regime we find odious. The fundamental nature of that deal in North Korea is, you know, if you pause on building nuclear weapons, we're going to complain less when you send families to the gulag. Yeah. And like, I'm okay with that deal because like, I just, I, I don't have an infinite budget to go fixing, you know, repressive authoritarian regimes around the world. And if I did, I would start with Alabama. <laughs> so so this, com this combination of, you know, actually trying to solve a real problem, but with this sort of faulty vision of what the future is for, the, for our relations with that country, the inability to really say, okay, this deal is going to transform that country or that country is going to transform itself. And so the they won't be odious in the future and the deal will be the bridge over the odiousness. That's good. And what we don't realize is that odiousness is far more robust and resilient than we Well, and the North Koreans for. are not signing this deal if they think it's going to lead to their collapse. Exactly, yeah. You know, and so, God love them. I, like, the engagement argument is highly adapted to Washington, D.C., yeah. And so it blooms here. But when you transplant it to like the rest of the world, it like it's a it just it doesn't work. Because no one no one agrees to engage with us because they think it's going to lead to the collapse of their regime. Right. Right. And I like I, I know why we say it. It's a, it's you know, the flip side of this is like sanctions where like we we sanction the crap out of countries because the people who want to bomb them are willing to settle for sanctions because it's, at least it's something mean. And the people who don't want to bomb them settle for sanctions because it's better than bombing them. But like none of us think they're going to work, right? There, there are these highly adapted political or bureaucratic strategies. And I, I feel like engagement is an argument that serves that purpose. It allows us to say that we want to try to solve this problem diplomatically because we, we don't favor doing something about it militarily. And, and and we don't want to just let it fester. And so, unfortunately, it means we probably have to cut a deal with Kim Il-sung. And, like, that's unpleasant. And so we're like, but by cutting a deal with Kim Il-sung, he'll be secretly cutting his own throat because he's really actually very dumb. 
It's like, yeah, okay, fine. If that gets you through coffee and bagels at Brookings, fine. If that's the argument you have to make. But like, it's not true. <sighs> well, nonetheless, this, it was yeah. a good deal. They, they, they paused building. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, they never completed. They built the one gas graphite reactor at Yongbyon, which we still have with us, which produces six kilograms of, of plutonium a year. They paused building two additional reactors. You know, so like, like I guess, uh, what was the, the other one they were building was, um, I forget what it was. Like, was it like, like 50 megawatts? You know, it's like four times bigger. No, I forget what it was. But they had two additional reactors under construction. They had a significant amount of plutonium. Those reactors have never operated. And so, you know, the North Korean nuclear force would be an order of magnitude larger than it is now. So, you know, I don't know. Let's put something. <laughs> on, on that optimistic note, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting lessons to learn here. But ultimately, as you are fond of saying, if, if you liked the end of the agreed framework, then you're going to love what comes after the JCPOA. We appear not to be very good at learning lessons, but I am very grateful that you were able to come on today and really do a deep dive on a topic that just doesn't get spoken about enough. That we are both here in 30 years so that you can invite me back on to talk about the JCPOA. <laughs> we can have exactly the same conversation. And then I can say, you know, this is a little bit like that conversation we had 30 years ago about this unusual little agreement yeah. from 60 years ago. Will it be then? Will it be? A, will we talk about? Yeah, the Saudi I don't, I don't know. They're right. There'll or, be some or, new what? nuclear deal, and people will be like, "Oh, there was a there was a disarmament deal for the empire of 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 Korea." You know, it's like, "Oh, yeah, that's a total alternative history." I so there used to be two, actually, and 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 the empire was totally restricted to the Korean Peninsula. So, uh, and we're like, "Oh, Vladivostok wasn't Korean back then." Like, no, actually, it was uh, it was Russian, and they're like, "What's Russia?" It's like, "Oh, that's what we called the Soviet Union in this weird period between." Jeffrey, we're got, we we have to have you uh, do the script for Steel Rain Three, which is <laughs> Korean Empire. Yeah, there we go. That's that's it. Let's let's pitch it. We got we got Hollywood on the line, right? All right, man. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Lewis. It was great, great to conversation. Talk to you. And I do hope to talk to you again and perhaps about something that actually works. Maybe. Who knows? That brings us to the end of part one of the podcast. Coming up in just a second, part two, where I sit down with Jeffrey and we talk about his career up to this point. Back in a second. Thanks. And we're back with part two of the podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. Tell me, uh, first of all, uh, so where, where are you from originally? I am from rural Illinois, uh, a place called Pekin, um, which is a kind of corrupted version of Peking because the locals in rural Illinois 150 years ago thought they were on the opposite side of the world from China. Um, oh. It's outside of Peoria, which is kind of a city, but not really. Peoria, mostly famous because it gave the world Richard Pryor, which tells you how wow, messed up wow. it is. And so uh, where did you go to university? So having grown up in not a very sophisticated or cosmopolitan place, I was only able to move up a little bit 
when I went to college. So I went to Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, which okay. is a small, okay liberal arts college uh, on the border between Illinois and Iowa. Would you study there? I studied philosophy. I thought I was going to be a political scientist, and then I took a political science class, and I hated it. And I went into philosophy, but I, although I loved philosophy and a lot of what I do is shaped by the work that I did as a philosophy student, I didn't want to be a philosophy professor. Teaching Kant to undergraduates at Kansas State University seemed not the ideal outcome. And so at the end of my undergraduate, I kind of turned back to the political science degree and then decided to try to go to Washington. Did you go to graduate school or did you go right to D.C. or both? I went right to D.C. So what I did was I, I did a summer internship in D.C. before my senior year. And I got very excited about Washington because it is a fantastic place to be a young person. My friends always ask me, do I miss D.C. because I moved away? And my answer is always no. I miss being young. Now, I, I don't actually think D.C. is all that great of a place to live, but I think it is a fantastic place to be 22 years old. And so I wanted to get back. In fact, I even thought about skipping my senior year at Augustana and trying to transfer to Georgetown or George Washington or someplace else just so I could stay in D.C. So pretty much the minute I got back to Rock Island, Illinois, where nobody wants to be, great place to be from, I was scheming to get back to D.C. So I applied to some graduate schools, got deferred to the master's program I really wanted to go to. And then went back to D.C. for what I thought would be a year and then never bothered to go to that graduate school. So how did you pick up into the professional world? So I got an internship at the Center for Strategic and International Studies back when it was in the old building on K Street and made a bunch of lifelong friends, all of whom are like now important, powerful people, which is like a really, really bizarre thing. And my first boss was a guy named Mike Mazar, who's still around. Mike is Mike is a, a, a really stellar human being. You can't imagine a better first person to work for in D.C. And I just kind of got bit by the nuclear bug. Mike had done some work on virtual nuclear arsenals. Did he, did he have you help research? Like, what, what was he putting you to task to do? Well, okay, so I'm coming from a not terribly distinguished undergraduate institution. So I had to settle for initially an unpaid internship on the editorial team of the Washington Quarterly. So, you know, I'm fact-checking and lightly editing articles. But I had a few advantages. I'm a, I'm a really good writer, which I, I'm not bragging, right? It's just that's the thing that saved me from a lot of misery, I think, in life. And Mike was the first person to actually say to me, you know, you're a really good writer. And so then Mike started giving me more opportunities, which was great. So why I never went back to the graduate school is... You know, I, I thought I'd go get a master's. And at the end of my first summer, I had a research assistantship at CSIS. And I noticed that people from that master's program were applying for that research assistantship. So I deferred one more year. And then after that second year, I was a research associate and I was supervising research assistants with master's degrees from that institution. And so it, it became clear to me that borrowing a couple hundred thousand dollars to get the job below mine was probably not going to work for me. I did so that did for three years, I think. And it's a little messier than this, but 
I was at CSIS when the administration, as it were, changed. Dave Abshire retired, and they went through a whole messy transition that eventually led to John Hamry coming aboard. And actually, that's when Kurt Campbell came aboard. And kind of, that's, I think, the CSIS people know. I was part of the old group, so I, I wanted to get the get the F out. Not that the new group was bad, but you know, you just you have your favorites. And so I I had started the PhD program at the University of Maryland and I made a decision at that point to be focused on that. And I I got a I got a, a research assistantship at at Maryland, which turned out to be, you know, just a, a much, much not just much better, it turned out to be the ideal fit for me. So I am really lucky. A lot of people have these horror stories about their PhD program. And I, I just, I listen to these stories and I know that, you know, I'm supposed to be like sympathetic and it's like, I mean, it just sounds horrible, but like I studied at Maryland under John Steinbrunner, who's like a parent wow. to me. I used to house sit for him and I backed his car into something once and I threw wild parties at his house and ruined a table and you know I he was great I don't I don't know what happened to the rest of you and were you teaching as well um no no I uh John was great John just simply arranged for us to do nothing but research so I got paid to do the research on my dissertation and what was your dissertation my dissertation was my first book it was a historical account of the evolution of China's nuclear forces from the 1950s up to what at that point was the present day, which is now a long time ago. That's kind of amazing. And uh, tip of the hat to the excellent report that one of our colleagues just did on the further evolution of Chinese nuclear forces. Mine or yours? No, no, no. Um, Decker. Yeah, Decker. My, my, yes, yes, my student now, oh, Decker. Okay. Well, not mine. I mean, I didn't do it, but Decker did it. Yes, Decker Evelith has done a really fantastic order of battle on the second artillery, which is, it's nice. It's a little different. You know, my emphasis was very much on the nuclear R&D side of things. So like the China Academy of Engineering Physics, which when I was writing was still, I think, the dominant bureaucratic force on decisions about nuclear weapons. A thing that has changed really significantly since I published my dissertation is that the PLA, which had been weak on these issues, became strong. So the Second Artillery Corps, which wasn't even a full service, became the PLA rocket force and acquired all the service autonomy and power. And so I think why I'm very satisfied with the academic research that I did, and I think that I was right, and actually I think the research was good in setting up why China's restraint was a function of that particular bureaucratic constellation, uh, it also had a sell-by date because that bureaucratic constellation doesn't exist. And it's that, I would argue, it's that change in who makes decisions that is resulting in this very different looking Chinese nuclear force than we saw in the past. That book. Now, your thesis, did that then open doors for you in terms of the job market or did you get placed? Like, how did you get out from your PhD into the job market? So, boy, yes and no. It's unclear whether it's the book or my crappy personality that closed a bunch of doors. But it turns out you probably shouldn't write a work of public policy where you wade into an area where a lot of people have what they consider to be specialist knowledge, particularly when they have language specialist knowledge, and to be like, hey, you know, I know you guys have been studying this for 30 years, but you all got it wrong. And so the, it, it, the book, some people love the book. Some people hate the book. 
And interestingly, the China community was particularly cold to me. So, which is fine because I'm really an arms control person anyway. I just, you know, I, I don't, the fact that they're drinking tea instead of coffee when they make nuclear decisions is uninteresting to me. But the alternative but, reality where you're, you're in the China desk at the State Department right now rather than... Uh... Yeah, but I, you know, I wouldn't be because I'm not, I'm not one of these people who's a regionalist. I, I, I mean, culture matters. It's not like I don't think it does. I, you know, I was on the podcast the other day making fun of Germans. Like we, we all have our own distinct cultures. But I tend to think that much more important than cultural issues are the bureaucratic structures. And that's still worth learning about a different country, right? China's politics are different than the US's. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Understanding how services work together and understanding like in Russia, for instance, design bureaus and services and how that impacts posture decisions. I mean, it's really important stuff. But I, I really, you know, I tend to start with the decision maker as the unit of analysis and then try to situate that decision maker inside the political, bureaucratic, institutional constraints. And, you know, the reality is, is the Chinese part of being Chinese is like way less important than, say, decision making before the Communist Party took power and decision making after. And decision making under Mao looks really different than decision making under Xi Jinping. And so it's not clear to me that culture is the right lens through which to view my interest in nuclear weapons. You know, I... I I tend to be a comparative public policy person. I like to imagine Xi Jinping sitting on the toilet thinking about nuclear weapons, and I find that the analogs to his situation are going to be much more like, say, a problem Lyndon Johnson had um, than a problem that uh, some Chinese emperor 300 years before had. But anyway, so to actually answer your question, the arms control community liked my book more than the China community. And so I had a couple of job offers, and I went to Harvard for a year to direct the project on managing the atom. Oh, wow. That's quite a jump. Well, I don't know. Is it a jump? I was a newly minted PhD. They, that's about the right job. You know, I, Marty Malin held that job after I did. Marty was much better at that job than I was. And Francesca Giovannini has it now. It's a good, it's a good job. And you did that for a year? Yeah, because I didn't like it. I mean, I, I could have stayed there for, or I Plan to stay there for like 10 years, but uh, have you ever lived in Boston? Yeah, well, you uh, you go live there for a year and uh, report back. Tell me how you feel. All right, all right. Well, we'll, we'll leave that aside so we don't enrage everyone in Boston. So wh what did you do then? Did you get another I actually, do you know Mike Horowitz? I made, I made lifelong friends with Mike and Rebecca Horowitz. And so the, the, year, the year was worth it. That's good. But what happened then? Did, so did you immediately... Once you were unhappy and you knew you wanted to move on, did you put out feelers or were there other job offers on the table or did you go back to an earlier job offer? Oh, I got so lucky. Okay, so I think that I want to go to Harvard because think about my 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 reference set at this point is my committee has John Steinbrunner on it. It has Tom Schelling, George Quester. Actually, I should just finish Steve Fetter and Mac Dessler. And so those people are all like, well, Harvard's the place to be, or at least it was in the 60s, you know, which is like their their memory of the place, you know, because Tom and 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 John had been there and and Steve, I mean Steve, Steve went to MIT, but Steve was like, you know, yeah, you gotta go. And so I went and I didn't like it. And I was pretty miserable. And I was pretty miserable right away. And, you know, when I'm miserable, I'm not all that quiet about being miserable. And Tom Schelling said, 
Mort Halperin has a grant from the, or has some money from George Soros because he was at the Open Society Foundation at the time. Mort Halperin has some money to do a study on nuclear weapons. If you're so unhappy, maybe you could come back to DC and work for Mort. And I did, and it was amazing. So the money was parked at the New America Foundation. I came down to the New America Foundation. And basically, I got to be Mort Halperin and Arnold Cantor's uh, factotum for like three years. It was it was incredible. So as my, I have these like two incredible experiences: the PhD program at Maryland under John, and then working for Mort and Arnie. And I, I just like you cannot get a better education in deterrence than you're going to get from like Steinbrenner, Schelling, Fetter, Quester. Dessler, Halprin, and Arnie wow. Kander. She's just not going to beat that. And there are little bonuses along the way too, right? Because they know everybody. So then it really opens up doors. So that, that's, that's how it happens. That's, that's basically the career, right? That gives me a PhD. It gives me a nice job in Washington. And then I decided I wanted to leave Washington. So I kind of looked around and California is really nice. What year are we talking about here? I left Harvard... In 2007, I volunteered on the Obama campaign that year. Didn't get the job that I wanted. Which was? Well, it would be impolite to say, but I, Bob Einhorn was going to be the undersecretary for policy. And then the late Ellen Tauscher shoved him (laughs) brutally aside. (laughs) And so... When Bob got shoved aside, my job disappeared. And Bob actually arranged for me to get a different job. But, you know, obviously, you know, front office tea is uh, is better than uh, a lot of other gigs. So I uh, I didn't take the other job and instead decided to move to California. This was, and that would have been uh, 2010. Yeah, because I remember uh, Bob had, they had put him in an office in the middle of nowhere in the State Department. And I went to see him there and heard a little bit of that about that story. And I was very sad because I thought. Oh, he was great. Yeah. Bob was created by space aliens to be T. You know, it's like literally someone was like, ah, you know, there's this obscure job on Earth and we're going to genetically modify a human being to be perfect for the job. And it's, this is, by the way, no criticism of anyone else who has ever served as T because obviously Bob can't have the job his whole life. But like, if there was ever a case for like doing the Andy Marshall thing and just being like, oh, no, no, you can just have the job forever. It would be Bob St. Right, and it's, I think it's one of the great injustices of Washington that Democrats never made that happen. Don't even know who your own good people are. That is sad. And so, what did you do for what did you do for Bill Potter at first? Oh, I am still nominally the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program. Oh, wow. Yeah, which makes it really weird when I go on to talk about like Iran or something. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure, well, if they don't mind. Then yeah, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I have the other title of um, eventually Middlebury saw fit to make me a professor. But I wasn't at first. At first, I was only a staff member. Oh, wow. Did you, did you want to mention it at all? Because I know uh, one of the most important parts of your career was your reaction to the WMD evidence about the Iraq War. And that set you down a very particular path, didn't Isn't that? Oh, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we've just been sort of talking about like how I got one job to the next. Yeah. But in terms of the actual work I do, right? The open source stuff. Yeah. That starts when I'm a graduate student and it does, it comes because I am pissed about Iraq. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often tell this story to students 
I think it's hard for people who weren't in DC to understand how crazy everybody went after 9-11, like legit insane. My favorite example of this is I have a friend. I feel bad. I, I'll, I'll try to anonymize the story. He ran an NGO that brought Israeli and Palestinian children together. Oof. Okay. Wow. So you cannot imagine a more lovely, progressive person who has dedicated his entire life to building a safer, better world filled with peace and not war. And in the madness following September 11th, I, he was literally telling me that like removing Saddam Hussein would jumpstart the peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it's like, this person's not oh, stupid. God. This person's not evil. This person was traumatized. And I think we all were. I had a lot of friends who I fell out with. Um, like it just was a really traumatizing time. And the whole freaking town went nuts. And what was really frustrating about it from a professional perspective, leaving aside all that personal stuff that's going on, is this retroactive claim the Bush administration made that everybody believed there were weapons of mass destruction is false. Yeah. But what is true is that everyone who was allowed to talk believed there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? If you dissented from that, you just weren't invited. And the reason is because how would you know? The intelligence community says there is. So, ha, you know, and you could like pick holes in it, right? Like, well, here's the intelligence presentation. That's inconsistent with this. This is inconsistent with this. You know, this translation uh, seems wrong or this interpretation of the translation seems tenuous. But that kind of argument wasn't welcome. And it really struck me that for those of us who were working in civil society, we had no capacity to meaningfully participate in these debates because we had no information right. of our own. Right. It pissed me off. It made me mad. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we both know people who, from that particular administration, were more than happy to say, well, you don't know what I know. Oh, God. I mean, they still do. People still yeah. pull that, which I just find baffling because I want to make this very clear. I think the U.S. intelligence community does a spectacular job. My point that I want to make is that they can never be perfect. And it drives me nuts. They're often scapegoats because policymakers act like any mistake they make, well, it must be bad intelligence, right, right. you know? And it's like, no, no, you don't have a right to perfect intelligence. That's not how it works. You get the best information available and then you get paid a lot more money than intelligence analysts do to make the consequential decisions. So no, that shit's on you, not on them. Sorry. Right. But they're, the idea that the intelligence community is right all the time is just insane. It's unreasonable. Well, and to be fair... But as you point out, that's not, that's not even what those folks were claiming. It was using intelligence as a selection bias tool. Yes. So when the intelligence agreed with them, they were 100% correct. When it disagreed with them, there was other intelligence or better intelligence that you just didn't have a chance to see. So that's even right. within the government, there were layers of this going on as well. I mean, I was working at the Defense Reduction Agency, and they were literally talking about taking out the U.S. inspectors who were blue-headed to the U.N., and then putting them back in again with green helmets on this time, and they would find something different. And even they were saying, you know, exactly what is it that we're doing here? And I remember we were all crowded around a TV set watching Colin Powell on TV because there was a real hope that he was going to show something that they hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And when they saw what his evidence was, you could see them all start to walk away one by one as they realized there's, there's not a there. Yeah, there. and it's, that, that to me has been the most important 
recognition for me. And it's one of the reasons I don't love the term open source intelligence because it's just all information. Right. And I often show a slide in my presentations and it's a it's a jockey riding a horse. And there's this old saying, which is statistically like a little bit of an exaggeration, but you don't bet the horse, you bet the jockey. Right. It turns out they both matter, right? Yeah. yeah. That's true of information too. The the horse is is the the technical means or the information you have, but the jockey is the analyst. And a good analyst with bad information is still going to get pretty close to the right answer. And a bad analyst with good information is still hopeless. And there are lots of good analysts in the intelligence community. And what distinguishes them is they're good analysts, not that they have better information. And then there are lots of bad analysts too, because it's a big organization. And the problem is policymakers pick the ones they like even if they're the bad ones, just as long as they agree with them. Or even worse, that they give them political direction on top of their analysis that then is supposed to filter that information. And then you end up with people who bury bad results and highlight the results that will get them the reward. So, uh, you know, there's... Yeah. Well, the, well also... The office of like reanalyzing intelligence or something like that? Yeah, they, they had some it? funny... Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the name, but yeah. And by the way... Since we're now getting deep into this concept, I, you can tell I'm deeply empathetic to these humans who I think are not well appreciated and, and are often blamed for things. But first of all, for any analyst, a natural impulse is to try to communicate with your policymaker and meet your policymaker where they are. And that naturally slightly biases what you're saying, but that's a natural human thing to do. You don't walk in, if you're briefing President Trump, you don't walk in and say like, you're not going to understand all of this because you're an idiot and I'm just going to like fire hose you with negative info. You know, you, you got to kind of be like, well, I know you think that, but you know, here's another perspective. You're already starting to soft pedal it and that's just natural and, and human. And then, you know, you're going to promote people who you like. So I, I found all of the discussion about like whether the pre-war intelligence in 2003 was politicized when people said it wasn't. They relied on the most narrow definition of what it means to be politicized and didn't really understand that if the president says that he or she believes something and, and wants to find evidence of it, that creates enormous pressure. And it, you know, good analysts are still going to buckle to that because you got to eat and you are, you know, they care about being helpful. They want to help. And this doesn't always happen to just one side either, right? Because, I mean, there's the whole example of China and complete misunderstanding of what was evidently a decision quite some time ago to build lots and lots of warheads and silos, and, and we just didn't really see it or didn't want to see it because the, the DIA even uh, revised their warhead number the year before you guys, among others, found all those uh, additional silos. So, you know, we, we, we all sometimes talk to our own audiences or don't challenge our own biases. And, and that's something that's, that can go in the Intel world as well as in the open source world. Well, this, by the way, is the connective line from my undergraduate philosophy degree to what I do now. I was an epistemologist and I cared about how we know things. So that led to interest in philosophy of language and philosophy of science. But it all comes back to this fundamental question of like, what does it mean to know something is true? I find that to be an endlessly fascinating question. I'm the one weirdo who likes research methods. You know, we have this we have this constant fight uh, on our faculty about like who's going to teach research method research methods, and nobody wants to do it. And I'm always like, I'll teach it, and they're like, No, 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 you're teaching the open source class. I'm like, But I love research methods. Give me research methods at <laughs> eight in the morning. That's what I love. Wow. Are you a semiotics guy? I. I'll... 
Yeah, a little, but not as much. Not as much. I I like the the part of language that I really like is the depiction of language as a game. I find that's the that's the aspect of language that people profoundly don't understand. And it's a thing like lawyers especially don't get, which drives me crazy. You know, because people are like, oh, words have meaning. I can look up the words. And it's like, no, the meaning exists in the usage. And that meaning changes subtly with practice. And, you know, there's no hard boundary for words and concepts. You know, Wittgenstein has this example of a spade turning. Like, at what point do you say the spade has turned over? And it's like, hey, you know, about there. Well, you can talk about that in language and it works. Right, you can play the game very successfully, but if you tried to like put a mathematical measurement on when the spade had turned over, it's just come on, it's nonsense. Or how many words just change meaning with time to to mean their opposite? It just you know, every, everything changes. I'm also mindful, you know, translating Russian often the sentence before and the sentence after matter in the understanding of a sentence, which to to people who you, you know are literalist that blows their mind. Yeah, context really. Being matters. a literalist is like a the worst the worst affliction I can imagine on a human being. It's just like, you're just, well, you're like missing out on like 99% of life. Well, speaking of missing out, let me, let me ask you one more question. Yeah. If you could give yourself advice earlier in your career that would have helped you, what would that advice be? If you could go back to a certain <laughs> point of time, what point of time would that be? And what would the piece of advice that you'd give a younger Jeffrey, what would it be? Okay, well, there's very specific advice to me, but then there is a broader bit of advice, because I think about this, and I think about that advice that I, I give to students. Oh, wow. Okay, go on. We could talk about whatever advice I'd give to me, but the problem is, all the advice I would give to me now yeah. would be in service of getting jobs I didn't get that, in retrospect, I don't want. Okay. <laughs> the bigger observation is, at least for me, and maybe this is survivor bias, but life has had this serendipitous quality. Missing out on jobs has led to different jobs. And I have generally been pretty satisfied with the kinds of work I've gotten to do over time. And the career I've had, while it looks nothing like the career I imagined I was going to have at the beginning and nothing like the career I imagined I wanted, I'm actually really satisfied with. And I think part of that is accepting things I can't change, but a lot of it is also the way in which you grow as a person. And so I think my advice to people would be to not overly fixate on whether or not they get something in the near term and instead be focused on this idea that you, you're going to have this 30, 40 year career and there are going to be ups and downs and ins and outs and you know you can succeed too fast. You can have a really amazing career early and burn out and spend a lot of time in your life being miserable. I mean, Mord Halperin has had a great life. I don't mean him as an example of someone who's had a bad life, but Mord was an assistant secretary at like 29 years old. And then Johnson lost. And Mort took this wild left turn with his life where he ended up running the civil liberties program, the ACLU, and was therefore way too left wing to go into the Carter administration. And he hasn't cycled back into government I mean, this is a person who left Harvard to make his career as a centrist government official, ended up suing Henry Kissinger. And I mean, just 
It, it, by the way, it's not as simple as Johnson lost. I mean, Johnson lost, and then Nick sta- uh, Mort stayed on as a, a consultant to the Nixon administration, and then that's where that whole thing happened. But you know, this is a person who this is a person who imagined he would have a career working for Republicans and Democrats in government for the rest of his life, and it, and instead becomes a kind of progressive icon who doesn't make it back into government until the Clinton administration, and even then, the confirmation fight that would have happened was vicious, and so he ends up on the NSC. You know, so like Mort's a lot smarter than me, you know, and Mort is a lot more ambitious or was and was a lot more successful. And yet his life took all these wild ups and downs and left and right turns. And so, you know, if Mort can't plan it out, you can't either. So like, just don't worry about it. It's like, don't be angry that you didn't get that invite to Pony or whatever. Like, it's just like it. None of that matters. None of that matters at all. I used to be so upset I didn't get, I was the only person I knew who didn't get invited to the Manfred Werner Fellowship. The Bundesdoggle. I don't know if they still do that, where they they take young people and drag them all over Germany and mostly involves, you know, drinking like way too much. I, I wouldn't oh, survive wow. the trip now. Why was I so upset about that? Yeah. Like what? So what? You know, it's going to be fine. But just do good, you know, do good work that you care about. And that that's so freaking trite. But I think the deeper observation is that you're you're probably unlikely to change your personality flaws. You're probably unlikely to get dramatically better at things that you're just not naturally talented at. And the things you're really good at, you're you'll probably keep coming back to. And like life is gonna sort of life is gonna push you, you know, more or less where you belong. Oh, the other piece of advice I could tell myself is be less of an a-hole. <laughs> it took me a while to learn. Linton Brooks. Once I was out to dinner with him and he just looked at me and was like, you ever write anything on the blog that you regret? And I'm like, like every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I could be nicer. You know, that was actually was going to be how I was going to end it was to say, but you do change with time. And I would say that you, I think, really have become a good friend and a colleague. And, uh, you know, I didn't always feel that way, but I've really appreciated talking to you more uh, and talking to you today and all the time that you've spent with us. I think this has been a really great conversation about your career and not just the mechanics of it, but the, but the drivers of it too. And so thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Jeffrey Lewis for being with us today. The Arms Control Wonk, the inspiration for this podcast, The Arms Control Poser. Thank you to the European Union Nonproliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding us. Thank you to B. Aubrey Freeman for the wonderful music. You can find a link to his band camp in the program notes. Looking forward to seeing you again here. Have a great day.
repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again.